my case was kind of right. You know, like it was excessive, that move to 2.5%. And then after that, you know, with QE and, you know, eventually the economy came out of recession, the yield curve steepened. And then, so how was that big? How was that big? But but I thought it would go a bit higher. Mm. I thought it'd go back up to, you know, it'd go back to that 5% range. So I didn't sell. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever, stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. To join me, go to myworstinvestmentever.com and sign up for my free weekly Become a Better Investor newsletter, where I share how to reduce risk and create, grow, and protect your well, fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Academy, and I'm here with featured guest, Vincent Deluar. Vincent, are you ready to join the mission? I am looking forward to join the worst podcast in the world. I hope to be the worst guest as well. Well, you know, that's the great thing about calling yourself the worst. We just don't have that much competition out there. <laughs> but let me introduce you to the audience. Vincent is the global macro strategist for StoneX Group, where he authors weekly commentary on global macro topics and advises pension funds on asset allocation. Prior to joining StoneX Group, Vincent served as Europe strategist for Ned Davis Research, where he created the firm's Europe product. Before that, Vincent was executive vice president for Trim Tabs Investment, where he headed the firm's quantitative research. Vincent is frequently quoted in the Financial Times, the Wall Street Journal, and Barron's, and is regularly on Bloomberg TV and CNBC. And you'll also find him on many great podcasts. Vincent, take a minute and tell us about the unique value that you are bringing to this wonderful world. <laughs> that is a hard one to answer without sounding like a pompous fool. I don't know if I bring a unique value to this world. If I were, I think it might be the um, a keen sense of history, a passion for um, economic history, and some sort of a attachment towards money. I grew up in France, middle-class family teachers. This was not what I was supposed to do. You know, I was supposed to be a Work for the French Foreign Service and kind of fell into uh, finance, mostly out of curiosity about how the world worked. And, you know, the, the more you study history, the more you understand the centrality of finance and you understand how, you know, pretty much everything has roots in financial crisis. So that's what got me in there. I, you know, I, I work at a very large brokerage. Fantastic people, world, you know, worked on Wall Street before, and I'm, but I'm, I'm not, I'm not motivated by money itself. Like I don't have angst over the, the monthly bonus or, you know, and I know these, you know, a lot of finance people. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, it's the, it's the industry that wants it, but I, I'm more interested in, in uh, understanding long cycles, trying to write well, trying to have some time with, with culture and, and think of markets not so much as a uh, a separate thing, but very much as to a, a small but very important object in the social fabric. Mm. Does that answer your question? That That is a very interesting answer. And it reminds me, I was speaking at an event for CFA in the Philippines, and they brought together like 2,000 young university students. 
And I gave a presentation based upon CFA ethics called, you know, 10 ways ethics adds value to you. And one of the students came up to me at the end of this presentation out of 2000 students. And she said, I just want to thank you because I didn't realize that there were ethics in finance. <laughs> it really made me realize like, you know, the stigma and all that. And I think when I think about what you've said about two aspects, you know, there's a place for people who understand history in the world of finance. You know, not everybody's keen on that, but I, I think I have a similar desire to really understand what happened in the past. So welcome to everybody who's like in the history, there's a place for you in finance. And the second thing is that there's also a place for people who are not driven completely by money. I know in the world of investment banking and all that, you know, the young people want to get, you know, make a lot of money and all that. You know, we get paid well, but it's the joy of figuring things out and trying to understand, you know, has this happened before? And, you know, how do I think this is going to play out? And then, as you said, you know, writing that well and presenting that well. So I like your answer because I think it, it inspires, it can inspire many people who, you know, may think that finance is just, uh, you know, money, 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 which I think there's so much more. It's so interesting, you know. Two thoughts on that. One. I don't know if you knew that before, but I actually teach the ethics session at the, uh, I used to teach for the CFS Society in San Francisco, and I teach it for St. Mary's College. Yeah, it's the first part of the curriculum, and it's on every level, and there's a reason for that. And then the, the second thought on, uh, you know, on making money versus gaining knowledge. I, I think at the end of the day, and the, I think that's why I, I was intrigued and happy to join your podcast is, you know, knowledge is more important than money. And the silver lining from silver lining from making mistakes is, you know, if hopefully you, you get the lesson out of it. And the older you get, the more the more lessons <laughs> you get. And I mean, truly what I find fascinating about our industry is is not so much the uh the money again. I you know, I'm, I'm on the research side, so this is not where people who contribute <laughs> my money go. <laughs> so let me put that there. But even so what what I find most fascinating is, is that we get to learn about so many things i think in most careers as you, as you go in you're in a in a silo and the walls get closer and closer you you, you know more and more things about fewer deeper and deeper about a smaller and smaller topic mm. and it can be you know a bit depressing over time in finance is the exact opposite i mean this week you know we had to learn a lot about swiss banking regulation and convertible cocoa bonds and 81 capital and you know, the week before it was about what the hell does Silicon Valley Bank do? And what is a bank that doesn't do any loans? Of this bank. Yes. And, you know, before that, it was, you know, the impact of the Russian invasion on the supply on you know, commodities that you may never have ever heard of, the chemical makeup of fertilizers. Before that, it was the Chinese reopening. I mean, this is real. I cannot find of a kind of think of, of another industry that is more suitable for a curious mind where you just get to learn and you know as you learn you make mistakes and mm. yeah great you know you make a mistake you learn from it and hopefully you share it with other people so they don't do the same when i when i talk to young people i just basically say you know it's been 30 years i've been in the industry and every day is still interesting and you know stuff to learn and like that's what i wanted when i was young i there was a lot of other things, you know, I thought, you know, I want to have money and all that. But the main thing wow. is that I really wanted to be able to feel like every day was 
an interesting day, you know, like, and I, I think I, I get that. I'm I'm interested in something. I, I just want to highlight that we're talking on March 22nd. So maybe just that events are unfolding so quickly these days. So who knows what, what will change when this comes out. But I'm curious, you know, you, you've done a lot on inflation and I've listened to some of the stuff that you've done and you talked about the era of cheap capital, cheap labor, cheap goods, you know, I would add into that probably cheap oil, which may be, you know, part of that. And now there's kind of a reversal of that. But yet also when we look at inflation in the U.S., it seems to be coming down. And at what point do we decide, okay, inflation is is over or it's not? Or are we in a situation where inflation has come down, but hey, it's coming right back up because all of those things and cheap capital, cheap labor, cheap goods, and maybe cheap oil, you could say are all going to reverse. I'm just curious where you stand right now on, let's just talk about U.S. inflation for a moment, and then maybe we just expand it a little bit globally. Well, so I, I like to make a distinction between inflation and CPI. They're not necessarily the same thing. I think inflation is, I would like to think of inflation as a broader kind of social, political, historical phenomenon, and CPI is the tool that statisticians have developed. So I'm not claiming there's any sort of conspiracy or you know, to, to I'm not I don't see a nefarious end um, behind it, but the concept of a thing and the and the thing itself are not the same thing. Mm. That's just the fact of how the world works. We we create models of things because we we can never see the thing, right? It's the uh, and the CPI is a, is a is a concept, it's a construct. It's I mean, it has some some flaws. It has some good things, and so. Anyway, no, sorry, sure. I do think the CPI is going to keep falling in large part because of base effect in the commodity sectors. So, you know, we have oil at 65, the spike of oil when, when Russia, you know, it went all the way up above a hundred. And you see that in that gas and, and other prices. And, and I think that was a, a large part of the plan of the Fed, right? I mean, even if that hadn't, hadn't raised rates, inflation would have fallen because of this base effect. We also have uh, used car prices, which spiked a lot last year. And that's, although I'm not sure to what extent that will fully normalize, I would, I would, I would caution to expect it's probably not going to fully normalize. But across many quote unquote coal goods, we had all these supply chain disruptions that are normalizing today. So yes, the CPI is going to fall. And then if everything goes fine towards the, the end of the year, what we should start seeing is shelter inflation, shelter command of the CPI to fall. And again, that's that's an issue of the construction of CPI. There is a huge part that lags quite a bit. It's shelter about 33% of the index, rent 7%, and then owner's equivalent rent, which is a statistical construct that the Fed uses or the BLS uses to track the theoretical value of the rent that homeowners would pay themselves if they some some crazy thing like that. So anyway, what, so what is the lag roughly on that? What's your estimate? Is that six months, twelve months? Or yeah. 20? So on 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 rent, it's probably closer to six months. Again, that, that has to do with the timing of renewing the lease, right? So the, yeah. so we had a big inflation spike, right? But you know, your landlord doesn't renew the leases every every day, right? So it, it takes a few months for the rent. The the newly, if you were to sign a new lease, you'd pay a lot more than you would last year. You know, it takes a few months for, for, for that to, to flow through. And then on the OER, it's even longer. It's probably more like 12 to 18 months. So let's say that the peak for the housing market was late 2021, maybe. Mm. 
something like that, early 2022. That should get you towards late 2023 to start seeing that in the owner's equivalent, right? But again, what, what I'm describing at this point is just math, right? I mean, right. you know, easy facts. Okay, so prices were higher last year, so on a year over year, it's going to change, and then. So that's why I'm saying CPI is falling. CPI is falling. That that I'm not questioning. I generally don't. I doubt it's going to fall all the way back to two percent. I mean, it's possible if we see very weak commodity prices, but I would. My guess would be it kind of bottoms out at three point five, something like that, three three point five. Yep. And then yes, I would be in the camp to think that it will probably reaccelerate or certainly stay significantly above 2% for a sustained amount of time. And that is because I think inflation, if we understand it as a kind of broad social, cultural, economic, political phenomenon is still there. Um, if you, and the way to measure that in CPI, it really wages to me at the end of the day, inflation, you know, I, w- I would prefer we measure wage, wage growth. And I mean, I guess you need price at the same time, but right now what the Fed what really matters for long-term inflation is wage in, in labor-intensive sectors. So when I, when I look at the CPI reports, I don't look at the headline, the core, the the trim mean. I mean, now we, we have so many versions of the CPI, you know, every, because everybody's trying to break it down <laughs> and to, to the bit that fits the narrative. Well, <laughs> I'm getting that too. The bit that fits the narrative is haircuts. I look at haircuts because I think it's a, uh, a highly competitive you know, there's no, um, everybody can open a haircut salon. And really what you pay for a haircut is labor and a little bit of rent. So this is truly the underlying measure of inflation economy to me is you see that in haircuts. I mean, I say haircuts, but uh, you could put laundry service, uh, laundry, garage, mechanics and garage, attorneys, what else go, would go in there, childcare. And, and that... That bit of the um, the core services in the CPI has been basically inflating by six seven percent for a couple of months. So it's no longer accelerating, but it's not stabilizing. And I, and I would say it's a good thing. I mean, I would argue that you know the hairdressers haven't been paid a fair fair deal for a long time, and it's good that they get pay raises. And I don't see that you know any of what's happening right now with you know the, the collapse of silicon valley bank and venture capitalists crying for their money and and private bankers in zurich running like crazy people is really going to impact the price of a haircut mm. Mm. and if we were to put it into the context that you know in in my case i have a, a global strategy that's let's say stocks bonds commodities gold how do you look at those? And and when I say stocks, let's say mainly I'm thinking global, let's say US is obviously a big issue, but let's just say global. Does this mean that the commodity, I know in my case, I've reduced my commodity exposure over the last few months and I've kind of given up on, I made made a good, you know, good performance on that. But I think at this point, probably not worth it. Gold still seems to be worth it to be in the portfolio. And I'm underweight the U.S. right now and shifting that towards Europe and Japan. I'm just curious, like, how do you look at, you know, either those four asset class or the way that you look at, you know, investment strategy? Okay, so you said uh, stocks and then when stocks, you bonds, commodities, gold. So I think my big view is, is that we are, you know, kind of a secular turning point where inflation is is returning and is going to be more persistent. And at some point, I think we'll, we'll just learn to live with it. 
and will abandon the fantasies of of going back to two percent. And in a way, I think that is a good thing. There is no reason that two percent is a number we made up, and we should be able to adjust it if if the conditions require to adjust it. So the, the the implication, obviously, of higher inflation over longer longer period of time is, is most negative for bonds. Obviously, now we've seen what I would say about bonds up until the events of the past two weeks. We've seen bonds reprice, especially in the front end. Um, I mean, if you look at that that U.S. yield curve, I mean, it's moving like crazy. I mean, you know, just what is it, like a month ago, we we're thinking, you know, we're gonna see like you know six percent Fed funds rate and and seventy five basis points was on the table and. So the short end of the curve actually looks quite attractive, but the, mm. the long end, I think, was still kind of ugly. But bonds are repriced. Stocks, especially U.S. stocks, they are not repriced all that much. I mean, yeah, we had a, a small bear market last year, but it was, you know, by no means catastrophic. And, and we, had, we had a pretty good, you know, bear market rally. I mean, we went up above the 200-day moving average, where, you know, go back to, you know, about 4,000. So it was kind of hard for me to be very constructive on, on the U.S. stock market in general, especially given its concentration in a handful of very long-duration stocks, stocks that were very rate-sensitive, since I think long-term rates rise. Mm. It's hard for me to be very constructive on, on, on the U.S. stock market as a whole. Globally, I think you know one of the trends of, of the past four years, along with foreign inflation, has been our performance of, of U.S. over the rest of the world, especially in the past 10 years. I think in, in each of the past 10 years, the U.S. outperformed the world, MSCI World XUS, by, by more than 10% in each year. Partially brutal for Europe, emerging markets. Um, I kind of think that a lot of that is, is, I mean, it's cyclical and it will reverse. We are actually seeing some of that since October. We are seeing better performance, outperformance by Europe. Now, Europe, of course, the issue in Europe is we have this, you know, the resurgence of inflation mm. is not just a U.S. phenomenon. If anything, it's worse in Europe because we have the um, shock from higher gas prices. I, I mean, I, I think emerging markets are really, I mean, depending what, of course, it's a, you know, a broad category that mm. I'm seeing together that may not make sense. But, you know, places like Indonesia, like even Thailand, where you are, Brazil, like, Inflation is not new to these places. Like, if, if anything, it's actually a bit lower. <laughs> you, you go in Brazil, I mean, I was there last week. I mean, you know, six, six percent inflation, 13.75 percent on the CELIC, the, the benchmark. So they already had their big adjustment in monetary policy. And now, of course, they're looking at cuts. So yeah, it could be that emerging markets end up, uh, I think, on a regional basis, maybe the, the, and again, it also, if you look at the composition of the indices, my concern is is rates are going to go up, inflation. So you want a short term duration. One issue with, with the U.S. And, and actually China at the same time is is the the dominance of these mega tech stocks. You know you don't have that in in, in a lot of emerging markets. Right? It used to be BBC banks, beer cement, <laughs> um, very short duration, kind of value oriented assets with 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 a, with a with balance sheet of tangible assets. Which of course has suffered dramatically in this era of, of low rates when people have valued intangible assets, things that may make a lot of money in the future. If we go back with, with shorter time horizon, because that's what inflation does, you will go back to the tangible asset investing. And that, that would include some emerging markets, which yeah, are not that affected. I mean, if you look at, you know, place like India, if anything, that means you get to buy oil at a 30% discount from the global prices. I mean, it's fantastic. But this is a very unusual crisis. I mean, usually whenever you have a crisis, you know, in financial markets, I mean, 
it's always going to be <laughs> you know indonesia is going to be there yeah. you know you know you know the rupiah is going to take a beating you know the weaklings right or south african rand or you know, the vulnerable country this is this is happening in switzerland <laughs> you know switzerland california so maybe it is this art crisis that's not you know the the, the child book the one one is not like the others Mm. Yeah, one is one is not this one is not like the Each others. One of these things is not like the others. I remember that. It's interesting you mentioned about tangible assets maybe being more attractive nowadays. And I know in Europe, you know, there's less tech and a little bit more tangible assets there. I'm curious, are you positive or negative on what's going on in Europe as far as equity is concerned? I mean, well, Europe Europe has got going a couple of th- couple things. I mean, it's cheap. Mm-hmm. Now again, I, I covered. I've been, you know, I covered, I ran a Europe product for for ten years, and I left because I ended up. <laughs> oh, cheap, yeah, yeah, cheap. Oh, it's cheaper now. <laughs> <laughs> so it's and always cheap. I was cheap. Really happy when my, you know, oh, I picked, uh, I picked the best European bank this year. It's only down twenty five percent. So it's it's hard for me to be very uh, excited about Europe. But what I will say, so yeah, it's it's certainly this big discount. There's a lot. Lot, much greater leverage on China. I think for people mm. who are not comfortable investing in China for, you know, political reasons or uh, regulatory risk, one way to get your China exposure could be to get it via, via the DAX, which, you know, essentially mm. is a leverage base, leverage bet on the Chinese reopening. And yeah, I mean, we're supposed to die, to freeze to death this winter. So that, that's our benchmark, you know, going with the idea of the, the worst investment. Like if your, if your expectation is to die, Pretty much anything is anything beyond that is a win. The only and that is a big, big but. The only caveat is is I you know inflation is at ten percent and the, the ECB is way way behind the curve. So that rate shock, which in the US you may may make a case that we're closer to the end than we're at the beginning. In Europe, it's unlikely and, and never discount the stupidity of European policymakers. Like they will always, you know, they there is tradition. Or European Central Bank to to do one last rate hike at the worst possible moment, um, so that that would be an issue for for valuations in, in, in Europe. And we do have a, a banking sector. I mean, we had monstrosity. I mean, we we, we had negative yields for mm-hmm. you know since twenty fifteen for the ECB a little earlier for the Riks Bank in, in Sweden. We had um, a one point eighteen trillion worth of bonds with a negative yield. The vast majority was that was in Europe, a little bit in Japan as well. I mean, somebody's got to own these, mm. you know, they're somewhere. I mean, a lot of them are on several banks balance sheet, thank God, but I don't think that's the only, you know, banks, insurers, and the pain of, of repricing something from, you know, the yield of, of minus 1% to, let's say, plus 4%. And it's I mean, long duration. Yes, yes. So, you know, so, I mean, have, we're talking about 30, 40% crash in the value of those. Yes. So basically what took down SVB, you know, mm-hmm. having you know, 30 year duration and, and, and a, a 200 basis point shock. So you lose, you know, 60% of, uh, you know, I, I suspect it's there and, you know, mm-hmm. SVB didn't hedge, but I, I mean, I doubt that people, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure that everybody was hedged either. So yeah. I suspect there will be more ghosts uh, coming out of, of, of Europe in the, in the financial sector. One last thing I wanted to tell you about was something I, I wrote about about a year ago and, and over six months ago, I kind of updated it. And I said that World War 2.5 just happened. And World War 2.5. 2.5. Yeah. It wasn't three. 
but it just happened. The 0.5 refers to the use of nuclear weapons. And yeah, yeah, we get that. Then we're really we're at three. We're at three. Okay. Yeah, but it was the U.S. against who? That's what I always say to my clients when I'm talking. I'd say, and you know, they say, "Oh, U.S. against Russia," and I say, "No." In fact, Russia is kind of meaningless in some ways to the U.S. It's not economically a real threat. It's not even militarily a real threat. China? No. Now, the key thing is in World War 2.5, America won. And World War 2.5, in my opinion, sitting sitting from Thailand, looking out at the world, Uh is U.S. versus Europe. Yeah, I I mean, they blew our pipeline. The significance of the cutting of the supply of oil from Russia to Europe is just cannot be understated. It, it okay, is okay. such a cute, huge, you know, okay. move. Okay, actually, you know what? I, I would agree with two, the zero point five on that because okay, my, my initial pushback was that yeah. to be at a war, it takes two. Like you cannot have a war at all. Because mm. like I, I can see the U.S. attacking Europe, <laughs> so that, that maybe that's where the point five comes from, right? So yeah. There's only one belligerent in that world. In that war, the, the only one is the victim. But so well, I think I think of Genghis Khan coming across, you know, you know, across the step and and approaching and destroying city after city, and he approaches the city and says, and, and "Either surrender or." Yes. I'm going to burn down everything and destroy everything. And I thought many of those cities just thought, okay, easier just to go with the flow here. <laughs> yeah, that's the um, unfortunate. I, I would agree with your assessment on on, on the war. Is the uh, I mean, at the end of the day, you you, you look at it, you know, for the kind of great game, real party view. I mean, the U.S. is a it's a good deal, right? I mean, they. They'll fight it to the last Ukrainian, right? They, in the opposite situation as the, in the Vietnam War, where they, they, you know, in the Vietnam War, the, the Chinese and the Russian were, were helping the Vietnamese kill American soldiers. Today, all they have to do is send them money and have the, have the Ukrainians die for them. Uh, they defang the Russian army. That that's a good deal. They're energy independent. If anything, that means that indeed your you demand is European demand is diverted. What, what used to be, you know, Russian food pipelines now is energy. Mostly from from Qatar and and, yeah. and in the U.S., so the U.S. is yeah okay I can keep doing that, and then the the, the rest of the world you know China India is like well yeah we get we get cheap oil out of this, so really the the only losers outside of obviously the Ukrainians and, and Russians who are who are dying are Europeans I I think that that's yeah and my answer. my the question I got is why why does America need to do that and my answer is because America stated very clearly that their number one opponent is China. And what we can see in the global South in particular, and countries like Thailand and India and others, is that they're not going along with America. And so the only place that America, America's got to get Europe under its control when it starts really- That's what blowing blowing back Nord Stream 2 was, right? It's like, it's no return. You know, even like, even if you, if Germany wanted to, and then I'm okay. I, yeah, I never believed that was, you know, a, a serious threat. But that, that, that basically Russian European reconciliation and, and the, but I think in the U.S. that that, that was a, that was a fear, like a, you know, the kind of a hardcore like Trump or even Peter Zihan type of guys that 
you know, Europeans are going to backstab us and the Germans are going to, you know, basically like, you know, they export more to China. China used to be, became the Germany's biggest trade partner. So, you, okay, so you, you sell your stuff to China, you buy the cheap gas from Russia, and then, you know, you have, you, you don't pay for your defense because you're protected by NATO. I mean, you're, you're really getting the better, the better bargain here. And they wanted to clamp down on that and do, do it irremediably so. I think I think it succeeded. Like it's very hard to imagine. I mean, I, I guess anything is possible to get, get a peace deal and stuff. But at this point, it's the the amount of bad blood that was spilled between Russia and, and Europe is is going to be hard. And again, the infrastructure yeah. has been taken down now. So <laughs> even if we wanted to, there's no there's no pipeline left. Mm. All right. Well. I really enjoy talking to you about these things. I think there's a lot that we can all learn. I was taking a lot of notes about, you know, what you were saying. And so I appreciate it. But now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. Okay. So the circumstances were um, great financial crisis, summer of 2008. Uh, I just started working, just started investing. And um, yeah, in, in the fall, I, the fall of 08, I mean, I remember just day after day that 30 year years dropping, dropping, you know, it, it was stable at 5% for it. Mm. it. seemed to me that 5% was the right number, right? 2% growth, 2% inflation, 1% term premium. It was one of these numbers, maybe in the CFA is where I learned it, you know, it's like, oh, you did it in discount model, like you put, to me, that was it, right? The, the long-term risk rate is 5%. And then uh, mm. a matter of week, I see the 30 year fall to, uh, I think it went all the way to 2.5 in the, uh, the depth of the Lehman panic. And like, that makes no sense. Like, I mean, you, you see a, a 250 basis point move in a matter of week. I'm, I'm, I'm going to fade that. I'm going to, I'm going to buy TBT, pro share, ultra short treasury, long end. So it's, so you're on a long end. So you already have. Built in that way, talking about duration, right? So I think mm-hmm. the duration of that baby is around like twenty years, right? So, so every every percent move, you gotta go twenty percent in there, right? And then you're adding some leverage to it. So I, I was like, and, yeah. and let me let me just try to explain that for the people who aren't necessarily sophisticated in the investing side, the interest rate went down, which meant that bond prices went up, and you were saying to yourself, that's just too high. Bond prices are too high, interest rates are too low, and I think that's going to reverse. Is that what you're saying? Yes. And, and therefore, you're taking on a position to say, okay, this is going to reverse, and you're doing that through an ETF that gave you access to shorting U.S. Treasury prices. Correct, correct. And the, the hard thing about my mistake is that it worked at the beginning, and I think these are the worst kind of mistakes because, like, if, if you put on a trade and right away it goes in your face, I mean, you're like, all right, you know, I'm, I'm a moron, you know, let, yeah, let me get out of this, and, you know, and I'll like just I just did with financials, never tell anyone, but like, then you have some emotional capital involved. Oh, I'm smart because indeed, my case was kind of right, you know, like it was excessive that move to two point five percent. And then after that, you know, with QE and, you know, eventually the economy came out of recession, the yield curve steepened. And, and so I was that big. I was that big. But but I thought it would go a bit higher. Mm. I thought it'd go back up to, you know, it'd go back to that 5% range. So I didn't sell. So I, there were really two mistakes there when I went back. One was the, the choice of the vehicle. I mean, leverage ETFs are a, they're trading, not investment vehicle. And I was... 
if if I had just made a trade, I would have made a lot of money, and I had. But I, I got what a trade and investment confused, and I had a trading vehicle for which I held. So because of the nature of leverage ETF, I mean it's 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 compounding, right? If you if you go down by fifty percent, it's a hundred percent gain to go back up. So leverage works again. There's a variance rate, if you will. The, the more volatile something is, the more likely over time it is that it will lose its value. So if you plot any leverage ETF, regardless of you know whether it's leverage oil or leverage volatility, whatever, they all trend towards zero over time, and that's that's by design. It's not a conspiracy. It's not a. It's just you, you have to keep rolling all these contracts, and you know sometimes you also have some. Roll costs, so they are not something to be held for the long time. And they, they say that in the prospectus. I mean, yeah. And I, I guess I knew that. I just, I just thought, you know, like the the lottery guys, you know, oh yeah, it's not going to happen to me. Okay. I don't know why. So there was that. There was using the wrong vehicle, and then I think the more important question was kind of confusing a a trade, a yeah, trade with an investment. Basically, uh, you know, it, it was a massive counter move, and I. I played it right initially, but it was a counter move. The trend for for rates at the time was was lower. We we had no inflation. We were going to have QE. The central banks were going to monetize trillions of debt and, and, and move to the long end. And I was fighting the Fed effectively by by shorting bonds. You're fighting the Fed. And it's like, well, the Fed the Fed just announced, you know, for tri- you know over, over the next decade they would the balance sheet would grow from you know one trillion before rates to nine trillion. Mm. And I'm the idiot fighting against that. I mean, there's literally someone of a printing press against me. <laughs> I'm like, but I'm really I'm gonna, confident. Yeah, I'm going to short the asset that you're buying. So, so yeah. And how did you get it? How did you end the position? How did you close the position? In what shame. Happened? In shame. In shame. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I probably lost, like, you know, eventually I kind of gave up, you know, like, hey, okay, I lost. Because I lost on the, the fact that rents went down. Although, again, it was not a. I bought it at the right like I bought it at the right time, so mm. I didn't lose too much on the rates. But it was the the volume track, the, the little thing that I was describing before, like mm. the fact that with a leverage ETF, like mm. just because of the swing, you end up with kind of a down. So that's what really got me. Mm. And I think yeah, I lost like 70 percent on it, and yeah, sold it for the tax loss, and and, and yeah, reminded mm. myself that I, I could be an idiot. It's good to make these mistakes when we're young because we don't have a, you know, we're not putting million dollars down on it. So that's that's the one good part. How would you describe the lessons that you learned? Again, the, the lesson really goes back down to to trade versus versus investments and kind of understanding the period we're you're into. It's kind of this, this mix of, of cyclical versus secular. And I think mm-hmm. that ultimately that's kind of what I confused. So what I thought was okay so there, there was a cyclical move right we had mm. this panic yeah bond prices went through the roof it was excessive mm. and there was going to be a counter reaction and that i got right the problem is the counter reaction was within a secular environment of falling yields falling inflation central bank environment and, and i should have taken that into account into my analysis just instead of just, oh it's too low yeah it is too low mm. and it's it's gonna bounce yeah it's gonna bounce but it's not gonna go- bounce back to before it's not going to return well you know we're not going to return to five percent plus 30-year yield we're still not there by the way even 30 years later like the environment really had changed and i didn't see that so it's, it's also in terms of i think getting an exit so you find it was market dislocation you find rational pricing great good for you 
take the position, but have a plan to get out. I didn't have that. Right, right. So maybe I'll, I'll summarize a couple of things I took away. I mean, the first one is probably for most people, it makes sense just to avoid leverage. You know, it can be useful at times, but generally it's probably not. The other thing, it's interesting, you know, you talked about good idea, wrong vehicle. You know, when you get an idea about a trade you think makes sense, you know, think carefully about how you're going to execute that. And does this really give you, you know, you, you, you mentioned something earlier as an example of this, like maybe investing in, you know, German manufacturers is a play on the recovery of China. Well, recovery of China is a good idea. And this is one vehicle to do it. Is it the right vehicle? Yeah. I think that's a question that is not that commonly asked. So I think that's a good one. The other one that I wrote about, I wrote down when I was taking notes was be careful about treasuries and also Forex, because basically you're fighting against the Fed. You're fighting against banks with a huge balance sheet and you're fighting against an unlimited buyer who can move in any direction without any, you know, without any warning. And that leads me to my last thing is, and I, I wrote this down about what you said about European bureaucrats. And I just said, don't overestimate the genius of Fed and other bureaucrats to just go and do something very, very extreme or wild, like keeping interest rates at basically zero for 30 years. You know, who would have thought that they would have done that? And so those are some of the things I take away. Anything you would add to that? No, I, I think you... Yeah, you really summarized it well. And uh, I mean, the one thing I would add is the uh, the psychological aspect of it. Of that, I think that's really what what got me is the uh, the hubris of having the trade work at the mm. beginning. And, and you know, I remember like, this this was a way, right? I mean, this is like the world was falling apart, and mm. I thought, wow, this is this could be my uh, George Soros breaking the Bank of England trade type of thing. Like, why, you know, I'm. I'm making this, I think, yeah, I'm, I'm like 20 something, right? I'm, I'm mm. trading from e trader. This is my PA on this not client stuff, fortunately. You know, and I'm like, why the hell is it 20 something? I was like, then I put a significant amount of my PA yep. in this, yep. you know, on, on the leverage ETF, on treasuries. And, and then it goes my way and I'm validated. And I think it, it increased my confidence. I should have done the exact opposite, right? Mm. Instead, if, if I had been wiser, I'd have been okay. I got, I got the counter move. The case, my case, you know, again, the the more you make money, the more your case is validated. So the my case was valid at the time, you know, when when yields three year yield touched two point five percent, it was stupid. It was panic. Yes, that was true. Inflation will come back. Growth, all, all that, but like when we're three, three point five, like that's it. The world had agreed with me, but I wanted more. Yep. So let's go back in time and think about yourself as well as the young people listening to this podcast and try to think about them kind of coming up with their idea, which is a smart idea. You know, you've thought about it, you've studied about it, you're you're relatively young. Based upon what you learned from this story and what you've continued to learn, what one action would you recommend they or our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? I mean, the sizing of the, the position is important. I was okay, you know, at the beginning of my career. Mm. It, but I, 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 at one point, it was probably like, you know, 30 to 40% of my, uh, I think I, I think I did in my, in my IRA, my retirement account too. It's like, what the hell was I thinking? <laughs> you know, I mean, I was really, so because that thing, 
you know, the line is, is I think, an old swap, some 30-year treasuries. Mm. Why is that? Like, yep. you know, why is that a valid investment? You know, why did I have 30% of my retirement savings in this? Now, hopefully, fortunately for me, and I think that that is maybe the lesson, you mm. know, when you're young, you can make mistakes. Like, you know, I had a, I had another 20 year to invest my 401k in a smarter way. So I guess my answer would be making mistakes when you're young. Yep. And then because you, you can't really avoid them, right? I mean, mm. it's like, you know, we, we all do make mistakes. Yep. I think that's, with age, we just become more uh, more prudent in how uh, we have an accumulation of a state. Yes, state. Yes, so yes. we've built some knowledge. And so we have some. All right, you know, I, I think I'm really smart right now. I, yeah, this is a, okay, but I'm not gonna go hundred on anything, right? So there's mm. that. Yep. And then yeah, don't don't let yourself get beaten down too with with mistakes. Yep. I mean, we we all they're, they're learning experience, and mm. I mean, yeah, the. Let's wrap up. One of the things I just want to ask you about as a resource, I know you've got your global macro reports. Maybe you could just tell the audience, you know, what you've got and what you're doing there so that if they're interested in learning more, they can go. And I'll have a link to that in the show notes. Sure, wonderful. So, yeah, so I write weekly reports for Stonex. Stonex is a global financial firm. We have Fortune 100 companies, offices pretty much everywhere in the world. We serve primarily, well, my reports are sold to the institutional clients. Yep. So the way people can get them is they trade with a firm and mm. then they get in touch with their, their Stonex rep or because of, of regulation in Europe, we actually have to unbundle the research and the execution. So it's possible to subscribe to my work. It's, uh, I think it's quite, uh, very, very competitively compared to the, it's an institutional product, but compared to all institutional products, it's, it's actually very reasonable. Four mm. times a month, I try to write about things that people don't really think through. I try to avoid press release or uh, earnings guidance or PMI or data. I, I, I try very hard to think about risks that people may have missed and things that are overlooked. I mean, we have a very gregarious industry, so there is a lot of room for that. And yeah, so they, if you go to my Twitter handle, at Vincent, D-I-N-C-N-T, mm. Deluard, D-E-L-U-A-R-D, at Vincent Deluard on Twitter, under my pink tweet, there is a link and you can sign up. You'll get a two-month free trial of my work. And, you know, then I'll, I'll get in touch with you. We'll see if we can turn that into a, an ongoing relation or just, just DM me. Like, I, I love I love Twitter. I've met some fantastic people on Twitter. People were very kind to me on Twitter. And I try to return that by being kind to people who reach out. Fantastic. Well, we'll have links to that in the show notes to both your Twitter as well as the free trial site. So last question, what's your number one goal for the next 12 months? Personally or like for... Uh... what Whatever you want to share. Personally is interesting. Professionally is fine. So I'm, I mean, I'm going to go with a personal answer. I mean, yeah. I'm, um, I'm about to turn 40. My dad just passed and, you know, I'm, I'm going through this kind of moment of soul searching you know um, on the okay like uh, i'm not immortal i have half of my life most likely behind me what do i want to do with the next half and what is it that matters to me you know i think for for a lot of people we we try uh spend a lot of time trying to be good for other people for parents for teachers for the boss and at some point you, you realize that you know, you get caught in um, doing things for other people. Yeah, that's mm. that's 
probably what a midlife crisis is. And I, I hope I do not solve it by buying a flashy red car and, uh, <laughs> and getting some hair implants, but in a way that is a bit more meaningful. Well, I know that feeling. I lost my father six and a half years ago, and it really did make me think, you know, okay, my time's limited. What contribution do I want to make? So that's an exciting journey. You're going to learn a lot. So listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. Remember, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. If you've not yet joined that mission, just go to myworstinvestmentever.com and join my free weekly Become a Better Investor newsletter to reduce risk in your life. As we conclude, Vincent, I want to thank you again for joining our mission. And on behalf of AE Stotts Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? No, thank you. This is a lot of fun. I, I, I enjoy your, uh, your style, your conversation. This was, this was very fun. And I, I like your, your humility. And I think we, we all need some of that. So thank you. Well, we appreciate your authenticity on this show. And that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our well fellow risk takers. Let's celebrate that today. We added one more person to our mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott, saying, I'll see you on the upside.